Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Hey, so uh, during the 1930s, there was a rancher by the name of Ira Yates. Uh, he actually owned a sheep ranch in West Texas that he was in danger of losing. So with little money for clothing or food, his family, like many others during the Depression years, had to live every single day just to survive on government subsidy. So day after day, Yates would watch his sheep as they kind of grazed over those rolling West Texas hills. He would rack his brain just trying to come up with some way of paying his bills and bringing in the income needed to be able to raise his family and keep his ranch going. Well, one day a crew of men from an oil company came in and they convinced Yates that there might be oil on his land. So they asked for permission to drill and Yates agreed. Well, at 1,100 feet, uh, the drillers struck an enormous oil reserve. In fact, the first well that they dug came in at about 80,000 barrels a day. And that was only the beginning because many more wells would be drilled and discovered on his property, some more than twice as productive as the first. And even in the year 2000, Yates Field was still one of the top 10 producers of oil in the entire United States. So here was a man living in abject poverty, surviving on government subsidy, but sitting on a mammoth underground lake of incredibly valuable oil. I mean, here he was, a potential millionaire living in poverty. What was his problem? Well, his problem was that he simply didn't know the oil was there. And many Christians live this way. And so the Apostle Paul wants us to understand the wealth that we have in Christ. He wants us to know who Christ is and what he's done for us so that we won't live in spiritual poverty. Now, uh, Ephesians is broken down into two, uh, two sections. The first section, chapters 1 through 3, tell us how to rest in Christ. They explain to us what it is that Christ has done for us. And then chapters 4 through 6 uh, form a different section of the book where we kind of get to walk that out. So we learn how to rest in Christ, we learn how to draw from Christ, and then we live that out in everyday life. And I just want to tell you, if you turn to Ephesians chapters 4, 5, or 6 and try to live that out without knowing what Christ has done for you, what wealth you have in Christ. It's just going to be an exercise in frustration and in futility. Uh, so uh, Paul is writing Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, so, so God's people won't live in spiritual poverty. And I want to be clear what spiritual poverty looks like. Spiritual poverty poverty looks like this. You wake up in the morning and you never feel adequate for the needs of the day. You want to love other people, but you mostly love yourself and you feel impotent to love other people. Maybe powerless. Spiritual poverty looks like shame and guilt whenever it approaches God. So instead of approaching God with confidence and assurance, 
Every time you think about God, you feel guilty and ashamed, almost as if God's just waiting for you to mess up. Spiritual poverty uh, feels things like bitterness and resentment against other people. It allows those to grow and to fuel. Spiritual poverty will cause you to question whether or not you are a significant human being or not. It will cause you to wrestle and struggle with the same sins over and over and over and over again and promise God that you won't do those sins anymore only to fail yet again. Spiritual poverty will cause you uh, to question who God is and who he says you are. So someone in spiritual poverty is going to question God's love for them, especially when difficult or hard things blow into their lives because they'll never know his strength. So spiritual poverty will cause you the first time things do, hard things do blow into your life, you'll fold under the weight and under the pressure of that. You, uh, yeah, you'll just call uncle in the face of difficult things. So here in Ephesians chapters 1 verses 15 through 23, Paul prays a prayer. And it is a prayer I'm going to challenge you to begin to pray, not only for yourself, but for other people. And it's a really, really important prayer. I'm going to spend much of my time this morning convincing you of why it is so vitally important that you learn to pray this prayer, not only for yourself, but for members of your family and for others. And here's why it's so important. See, you don't automatically get to know God better just because you're in a Bible study or a small group. Now, that's a great place to start. We highly recommend uh, both of those kinds of venues. But the reality is sometimes we can have hearts, you and I, where the truth of God, somebody tries to speak those in, or maybe we open a Bible or we're in a group discussion, and the truths being discussed there can kind of bounce off our chest and kind of fall to the ground. They don't penetrate our heart. So Paul prays this prayer that his people, that God's people would know him better, that God's people would have not just information about God or about Jesus, but that they would have intimacy with Jesus. And let me tell you, there's a huge difference between collecting information about Jesus and being in an intimate relationship with Jesus. So Paul prays here that God's people would love God, not just with their head, but also with their heart. And one of the first things he says as Paul gives thanks for them, you know, one of the first things he says is that, uh, you know, they need a revelation from the Spirit of God. There's some disagreement here about how to interpret this. So some, some scholars will say that they need the Holy Spirit of God to reveal some of these things to them, that it has to be supernaturally revealed. And other scholars say, no, that's not really a reference to the Holy Spirit. That's more a reference to just a heart 
heart that is open to the wisdom of God, an inner spirit that's receptive to these spiritual truths. And either way, you can decide for yourself which way you think it reads the best. But he's praying that he's essentially saying, look, for someone to grasp the depth of their riches in Christ, that doesn't come just through study. It also has to come from revelation or at least a heart that is open to God. So Paul's just simply praying for God's people to experience greater intimacy with Jesus. And he tells us that we're on the right path when we learn one of four truths. And so as Paul starts this prayer, he starts it that way. He says, Enlighten our hearts, Lord, so that we may know, and he wants us to know, four things. So uh, I want to start there. Just let's start with enlighten my heart, Lord, so that I may know the hope to which you have called me. I'm gonna, I'm, I know it seems a little kindergartenish, a little pedantic, but let's actually speak this out loud together because this is the heart of Paul's prayer. Let's speak this just this first sentence. You ready? Enlighten my heart, Lord. Okay, you know what? Nobody's following along. So uh, you're super half-hearted. I'm going to coach you, and I'm just saying, unless we put more heart into this, we're going to be here all day because you're not going anywhere, okay? So, uh, so let's speak this with great conviction and as a prayer. Let's make sure that our hearts are aligned with our words as we pray this prayer. Are you ready? Enlighten my heart, Lord, so that I may know the hope to which you have called me. Amen. So that's the first thing, the hope to which you've called me. Now, what is that hope? That hope is everything that we've already been told and taught in Ephesians chapter 1. So that hope is this, that regardless of your ethnicity or the color of your skin, you have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Your hope is that he predestined you for adoption as sons and daughters and therefore he has accepted you and embraced you as sons and daughters into his family. Your, and that's your hope about God the Father, that God has chosen you, God has predestined you for adoptions and sons and daughters. But furthermore, not only has God the Father done those things, but God the Son has purchased you with his blood, forgiven you of your sin so that you can approach and serve him in utter and complete confidence and freedom. Furthermore, the Son of God has revealed God's will to you and me to unify all things before him, in him, and around him. But it isn't just that God the Father participated in that hope or God the Son, but God the Holy Spirit as well because the Holy Spirit of God has sealed you registering your, your salvation as a finished transaction. So think of Notary Public. When you go uh, to get a, a document made legal, a Notary Public puts his or her seal on a document and, that's what, and, and that with their signature, that's what makes that document legal legal right in the same way God has put his seal upon us in the form of the Holy Spirit saying that look that's a legal document 
regarding your salvation. And not only that, the Holy Spirit of God has also become, Paul taught us, a down payment or he's earnest money guaranteeing that God is going to come back for you. All of that is the hope to which he has called us. And let me tell you, that kind of hope, friends, it's a game changer. It changes everything. It changes the way that we think. It changes what we value. See, in our culture, what we tend to want to value are things and possession and stuff and money and bank accounts. And when you, when you view your hope through that lens, it says, no, you can't value those things. They don't matter. They won't last. In 50 years, you won't care about any of those things. The only thing that will matter is people and love. See, that's what our hope teaches us. Furthermore, it changes the way we suffer. So a couple months ago, I picked up a brand new hobby. It's a hobby called pickleball. Now, uh, it's a weird sounding name, but here's what you need to know about pickleball. Pickleball is the fastest growing sport in America. It has been for a number of years, and it is the fastest growing sport for one reason, because it's addictive, it is, uh, I love to play. I love to play this game. In fact, I find it hard to stop playing this game. And the problem is my knee, does, my left knee in particular, does not always agree with me. So my knee and I are having continual disagreements about how much I should play, and my knee is winning that argument. So if I let it, it can be really, really frustrating for me to have to sit or stand on the sidelines and watch other people play when I would really like to play. But at the end of the day, listen, this doesn't, this isn't like, uh, it's, at the end of the day, I know because of this hope that I have that this knee is not always going to get the last word. That one day I will have a new body in a new heaven and a new earth. And so this knee won't always scream so loudly. It won't always hurt so badly. And furthermore, I don't need to go out and win a pickleball game to demonstrate how significant I am to somebody else. That doesn't matter because the God of the universe has chosen me and adopted me and told me that I'm worthwhile. And so it changes, friends, when you know the hope to which he has called you. It changes the way we suffer. And it absolutely changes the way that we die. I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer, but the last time I checked, the death rate was right at about, let's see, 100%. Every one of us are going to walk through that door. And the hope to which he has called us is a game changer here because Christ conquered death. Let me give you an example of this. So a couple of months ago, uh, we had a, a huge funeral here. This room was absolutely packed out. We had chairs along the back of the room, standing room only, because we had to bury one of our pastors here. Jason Chenna was served here for 18 years. Our staff was uh, just 
heartbroken. I was heartbroken. It's one of the hardest things I've ever, ever had to do. And a lot of times when people come to a funeral like that, they think that they're there to say goodbye to whoever is, you know, being buried or cremated or whatever is happening. But listen, friends, because of the hope that we've been called to, because of the hope that we have, we, followers of Jesus don't go to funerals to say goodbye to people. They go to funerals to say, see you soon. See you soon. Because of Jesus. And there's a big, big difference between gearing up for an event where you think you have to say goodbye forever to somebody versus, hey, I'm just, I'll catch you later. I'll see you soon. And the reason I say soon is because this life is a vapor. And if you would have asked me before that funeral, you know, I would have told you, no, the day's going to come. I mean, Jason's younger than me. He'll be preaching my funeral. No way I'm going to be preaching his. But that's exactly what had to happen, friends, because our lives are a mist and a vapor, and they fly by. They fly by. And so we have to be in and enjoy every single day and every single moment not waiting for the next stage or the next purchase or the next thing or the next stage of my life. Uh, it's so important. I mean, this hope changes everything. But that's not all. It's not just that we're going to pray to God to enlighten our heart regarding the hope that we have. We're also going to pray that God would enlighten our heart regarding the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I love this. This is part of this inheritance is just Jesus. He is our treasured inheritance. His glory revealed in and through our lives. His presence seeing us through. His love as a lamp and a guide guiding us through, right? I mean, he is the only opportunity that we have because of him to approach God with confidence instead of guilt and shame. But I want you to notice what else is our inheritance. In fact, let's look at the phrase here. He says, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints... In other words, part of our inheritance is each other. We are an inheritance to one another. In other words, we become a body, we become a family, we become a church. And this is an inheritance that we celebrate together. In fact, the, I don't know of any kind of celebrations where people celebrate anything alone. I don't know of anything. I, in fact, when people celebrate, what do they do? They come together. And in other words, it's not just my inheritance. It's not just your inheritance. This is our inheritance. We inherit it together. Now, I want to illustrate this. So I want you to think about celebrations for a minute. But if I want to divide a room in Shelbyville, Indiana, here's how to do it. I, I start to talk about IU and I start to talk about Purdue. 
see, it's already started, already begun, right out of the gate, right? And people are going to draw lines in the sand on that. In fact, I have no doubt that if I really teased this through week after week, we'd have two Shelbyville Community Churches. There'd be Shelbyville Community Church Purdue, and then there'd be Shelbyville Community Church IU, and people would draw lines in the sand and celebrate that, right? Well, in, the, in late in January, IU played Purdue in basketball, and uh, depending on which side of the fence you stand on, you either hated that game or you loved that game, but it was a close game and it was a hard-fought game. So I'm going to show you just like the last uh, 15 seconds of the game, but then I want you to pay attention to the celebration. How do the players celebrate? Do the players go off into their own corners to celebrate? How does the crowd celebrate? Do they just stay in their chairs? And so uh, I want you to check this out and pay close attention to, it, to this celebration. If you're an IU fan, I don't want to rub, or if you're a Purdue fan, I don't want to rub salt in a wound, but the final score was 68-65 IU. Uh, Yeah, I'm just saying. I'm just telling you the truth. Don't shoot the messenger, okay? Yeah, so, but I want you to notice, did any of those players go off into the locker room to celebrate? Did they go to different corners? No. The celebration happens together. Friends, we have an inheritance, and part of that inheritance is one another, and that is meant to be celebrated. It's meant to be celebrated together. It's an incredible thing. Now, I I have to talk about this because how many times, I mean, all of us have, how many times have you seen an inheritance divide a family? I mean, this happened in my family. When my grandfather passed away, my, my father, his brother, and their stepsister all met, and it was so contentious because, you know, because she was the stepsister, right? So they didn't, you know, so there was all this arguing, well, I want this, no, you can't have that, and I'll take this, no, you can't take that. It was, I mean, it was just awful, and we've all kind of had to live through that. Uh, inheritances sometimes divide a family. Friends, this is an inheritance that celebrates the family. This is an inheritance that unites a family. This is an inheritance that brings a family together. So Paul prays two things. He says, hey, I'm going to pray that God would enlighten your heart, first of all, so that you would know the hope to which he's called you. But secondly, I want you God, would you enlighten our hearts so that we would understand the rich inheritance that we possess in the saints, in Christ Jesus? And then there's a fourth, a third thing that he asks for our hearts to be enlightened about. He says, uh, hey, Lord, would you enlighten our hearts regarding your incomparably great power for those who believe. I love that word incomparably. It means literally that it can't be compared. It can't be measured. 
it, it can't be uh, defined. In other words, and, and we kind of get this, all of us at some level, we recognize levels of power. So the Greek term here is actually a Greek word that sounds a lot like the word dynamite. So that gives you some idea of level of power. So I want to illustrate this to help us get at levels of power. So last spring, our staff went ziplining uh, together. Now, if you've ever ziplined, um, you know that first of all, you climb and you climb and you climb and you end up on about a six-story apparatus. They, they uh, hook you in and you're supposed to jump or step off of essentially a six-story building. I thought I was up for that until I actually got up to the top and I found it was really, really hard to take that step and trust that line. Well, if you've been ziplining, you also know this. At the bottom, there's somebody there to catch you because you're going so fast that if somebody doesn't catch you, you're just going to crash into the end, in this case, a wooden wall, and it's going to hurt a lot. So the first two times I went down, I, the person catching me at the bottom was Pastor Jess, who was just up here talking to you. And I felt kind of bad for Pastor Jess because I, she wasn't really catching me. She was more slowing me down, and I was mowing her over. So, but then on the third time down the line, Pastor Jess wasn't down at the bottom waiting for me anymore. You know who it was? It was Pastor Craig. Running into Pastor Craig wasn't like running into a, a bunch of rubber bands. It was more like hitting a wall. Because Pastor Craig has a little more power than Pastor Jess has, right? I mean, we all understand levels of power. Now, that's not to say uh, that Craig's power is inexhaustible or incomparable because if I brought Craig up here and I said okay Craig we're going to put you through the paces I want you to run on a treadmill I want you to do some sit-ups I want you to do some push-ups I want you to you know do some curls I want you to ride on a stationary bike at some point up here Pastor Craig's energy is going to run out you know why because it's exhaustible but God's energy is inexhaustible See, Craig's power is measurable. God's power is immeasurable. You can't, it can't be measured. Uh, Craig's power is comparable. God's power is incomparable. Listen, God has never uttered these words. Wow, I worked really hard today. I think I need a nap. God has never said that. You want to know why? Because he has incomparably great power. He does not need a nap. You'll never catch God saying those words. You just never will. See, but this begs a question, doesn't it? Because, I mean, how can you know something that can't be measured? And, or, how do you calculate something that can't be calculated? How do you imagine a power that is literally unimaginable. How do you do that? I mean, can something like that be known? And Paul says, yes, it can. Yes, it can. You see it in two ways. You see it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and you see it in his ascension 
uh, to a seat of authority and power at God's right hand. So what, what Paul essentially says is this. He says, if you want to know God's power, look to the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to know God's power, look to his ascension into heaven. And when you look to his ascension, I want you to notice where Jesus is sitting. He is seated not just at the right hand of the Father, but he is seated at the right hand of the Father in the heavenly realm. In other words, at the highest possible level. Now, some of you know this, but the right hand is the hand of power. It is the seat of authority. It is the seat of rulership. And you go, well, but what does that look like? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, and he tells us this, that when we pray for one another, when we pray for our kids, when we pray for people that we love, and we pray that they would have hearts that are enlightened to know the hope to which he's called them, that when we pray and we ask God to enlighten our hearts to uh, his incomparably great power for those who believe or to enlighten our hearts regarding this glorious inheritance that we share together in the saints. He said there's one more thing that we need God to enlighten our heart about and that's this, his ultimate authority over everything. His headship over the church his ultimate authority over your family and even over you. Because it's Christ's intent to unify everything around himself. So Paul tells us this. He, he, ch- he chases out what, what the ultimate authority of Jesus looks like. And he says that Jesus has been placed, quote, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So he doesn't just say, hey, he's, you know, he's a little bit above. No, he says it's, he's far above. There's a big gap between he and whoever rules below. And in fact, there's even a gap between uh, every title that can be given. In other words, this is why we can't just say, well, Jesus is the king. I mean, sure, that's been taken by somebody else, but there are other reasons why we can't say that either, right? No, he's not just king. He's the king of kings. See, we can't just say he's Lord. No, we have to, that gap is there. We have to say, no, he's the Lord of lords. I mean, his ultimate authority is so high above everything and everyone else's. And then he goes on to say, and God placed all things under his feet. That's you. That's me. That's the way that we think. That's the words that we say. That's the actions that we do. God placed everything under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. See? This means that Jesus is subject to no one. And even, in, even the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything and in every way. Here's what you need to hear me say this morning. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. If you drive a mile south and you go to Mount Pisgah Baptist, guess what? 
Jesus Christ is the head of that church. If you drive a mile west and you go to Crossroads Community Church, guess what? Jesus Christ is the head of that church. If you drive right down Broadway and you go to, uh, you, you know, you look on your right or your left, whether it's First Baptist, First Presbyterian, Jesus Christ is the head of those churches. Now, here's why that matters. Because sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, Pastor, I really, here's what I really like about your church. Or they'll say, well, here's what I'd like to change about your church. Or here's what I don't like about your church. Friends, this is not my church. This is Jesus' church. He is its head. And I, you, we, we all, we are all his. This campus is his. This building is his. That's why when I retire, I won't cash it out and sell it to somebody else because it doesn't belong to me, right? It belongs to Jesus. And it will be his forever and ever and ever. And because he is the head of the church, we have to make much of him. We have to point people to him. We have to talk about him because he is the one who fills everything in every way. See, this is his church and every one of us in it, we each belong to him. And I tell you this, I, I come across people all the time who have bailed on Jesus because they had a heart that was never really open to these kinds of truths. I mean, they were willing to collect some bits of information about Jesus with their head, but they never really had hearts that were willing to be open to or embracing these kinds of truths. And so let me just ask you a question. Would you be willing to be a man or a woman that would approach Jesus with an open heart and say, hey, would you reveal to me, would you give me that spirit of wisdom, would you give me that spirit of revelation so that I might know the hope to which you've called me, so that I might know the riches of the inheritance that we have in the saints, that I might know your incomparably great power to those who believe. Enlighten my heart that I might uh, know your ultimate authority over everything and everyone, including me and my family and this church. You are the head of the church. Because let me tell you something, friends. It's one thing to know information about Jesus in your head, but it's another thing entirely to know Jesus with your heart, to live in intimacy with him, where you're drawing from his riches, where you're drawing from his love, where you're drawing from the well of the inheritance that you have in him, who he says that you are, versus just trying to live it out all on your own. I want you to imagine a young man trying to fall in love with someone, in this case a young woman, from visiting her Facebook page. So a young man might say, hey, you know, I carefully studied her pictures. I memorized all of them, all the pictures she had with her friends. I memorized all that. I read everything that she posted. I read every one of her friends' replies. You know, I listened to all the music that she liked. I read all the books that she mentioned, and I watched all the movies that she referenced, but I just couldn't come to love her. Well, why would he say that? Well, the truth is he never knew her, right? He never met her. Met her. He only collected information about her from Facebook. Essentially, he cyber-stalked her. That's all he did. That's all. 
And like that young man on Facebook, a lot of people open their Bibles to collect bits of information about Jesus, but they never get around to intentionally growing an intimate relationship with him. And friends, that's what makes all the difference. You are meant to live out of your relationship with Jesus, not just know some facts and data about him in your head. So as your pastor, listen, I want intimacy for you, not just information. I want enlightened hearts. I want open hearts that are open to who Jesus is and what he has said and what he has done. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray this whole prayer together. You're going to do it with your whole heart, or you're going to be here all afternoon, okay? So you may as well be all in because, well, you really don't have a choice. So, uh, so we're just, I'm just going to say this, and you're going to say this prayer with me, the whole thing, okay? So are you ready? Let's do it together. Enlighten my heart, Lord, so that I may know the hope to which you have called me, the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, your incomparably great power for those who believe, and then finally, your ultimate authority over everything, including, amen, and even me, even you. Now, um, we're going to sing a song. We're going to respond in worship. And I actually want to set this song up today. You know, uh, it's called My Confidence. And I, I want you to hear some of the lyrics of what we're about to sing together. It says, when my world is shaken, you are my firm foundation. You are my rock of ages. Jesus, you are. When my heart is breaking, when my strength unfailing, because you're my light unfading, Jesus, you are. What could ever stand against Jesus? You're my one defense. What could ever stand against Jesus? You are my confidence. Jesus, you are my confidence. So let's stand and let's sing that together.